Five formation behind Christian, first and ten from the Vikings, 18-yard line. Handoff, Adrian up the middle, room to the 20, cuts to the left to the 25, and Adrian's loose! He splits the defense! 50, 40, 30, goodbye, baby! Touchdown! What is up? Welcome to the Sportscasters Proper, the very last show of 2012. It is Season 3, Episode 6, December 17th, 2012. Um, my name is Steve Bennett. I'm the host, and the co-host is Don Russ. Don's right over there. What's up, buddy? Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. We got a great show lined up for you today. You know, we've been talking about this for a while, that there's less and less sports every day out there, and... With as long as this show can be, we have been talking about kind of scaling back a little bit from three guests to two, just because what three people are we going to talk to once football ends, when all there is is basketball? basketball. Right. You know, I mean, baseball will be getting there, but, you know, so this is going to be the first show where we're going to kind of try out the two guests, and we have two very good ones. One of them is Mike Tannier from SportsOnEarth.com. He's a football writer there. And we did a really fantastic, fantastic interview that's long, that you'll really enjoy about the National Football League. And we also are going to talk to a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame. This is the first time we've had anyone who's actually in the Hall of Fame on. We've had Roy when he was about to be in the Hall of Fame. But now he's actually a member. And... um, uh, he's on the show, and we're going to do three really fun things with him. Well, two fun things and one absolutely <laughs> hideous thing. Uh, first of all, we're going to get the football or the NHL lockout crap out of the way. And then we're going to talk a little bit about his induction into the Hall of Fame, and he's going to tell us some amazing things about Pavel Burry that absolutely blew my mind. And then for fun, for the last couple minutes, we're going to talk about Tom Thompson, who is a Canadian... Basically, he, you can explain it like this. The mystery of Tom Thompson in Canada is equal to the mystery of JFK in the United States of America. Okay. So, we're going to talk to him a little bit about a tragic hip song about Tom Thompson because he is the expert on Tom Thompson. And it's just something for fun and at the end, and we'll see what you guys think of it. Uh, don't forget to check out last week's show. Um, we had a great one, Jonah Carey. Uh, Dan Levy and Dan Wolken. Uh, Also this week at footballnation.com, we have Jim Trotter, senior writer from Sports Illustrated. He's going to talk to us a little bit about the San Francisco 49ers and uh, some other stuff like that. So don't forget all of that, and let's get right away into three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever! (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. 
All right, as we usually do here, we're going to look back at the uh, previous week in football on our other podcast. You can, we'll see the look ahead, our preview of Week 16. Uh, a lot of blowouts this week, and one of them that I guess I have to kind of call out and congratulate, I suppose, if they were looking for our approval, is the Falcons. Uh, I didn't see that game coming. 34 nothing over the Giants. It was really their first true test all year that they passed, in my eyes. I mean, if, unless you count Denver, but that was a different Denver team when they beat them. Uh, but they passed it with flying colors, so congratulations to the Falcons. It looks like they're going to coast to uh, a bye week in the NFC. You know, but I'll say this about that, and Kenny Albert said it on our Football Nation podcast last week. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean anything to me still. Right. I mean, it may have made me believe that they're a better team than I thought, but they're still 0-3 in the playoffs. Dimitrov uh, and when, Smith era in the right. playoffs. And... One of those losses I can clearly remember against Green Bay was at home. They were humiliated. So still to me, they could have went 16-0 and in the regular season this year. And I still want to see what they're going to do in the playoffs. Right. For that team, they have gotten to the point where all that matters is the playoffs. Yeah, I agree. And I imagine their fans are thinking the same thing. they got two weeks to go and there's not a ton to play for other than home field advantage. But... The, the fans got to be itching to get to that point. Just prove prove everybody else wrong. You know, I want. I think one thing that, when looking back on last week, that disappoints me a little bit, is that there was so many good games, and they were calling it Showdown Sunday on the NFL Network, but it kind of turned into Blowout Sunday. You kind of mentioned that. Yeah. You know, I mean, there was a ton of blowouts. I mean, the Saints humiliated the Bucks. I mean, I thought that game was going to be like forty-one thirty-seven, and it was forty-one to nothing. Uh, the Redskins kind of pulled away in the second half from the Browns. The Redskins are for real suddenly. I mean, they're yeah, winning with their like backup it. quarterback on the road. You Eagles, know, Eagles and the Bills are still terrible. Yeah, both of them got blown out. You, I have a question for you, and I asked Jim Trotter this on the other show. And Do you have any problem as a Bills fan with the way Pete Carroll coached that game? Because he called a fake punt, Well, I mean, mostly. that's part of it, and it's just like, this is two weeks in a row where it just feels to me like he runs up the score, and they score their their touchdown to like get the fiftieth point, and the guy's jumping up and down still. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we'll see. I I was listening to uh, Aaron Schatz on another radio program as I drove over here, and uh, he was talking about how Seattle is one of like the top four teams in the league. I just don't see it. Uh, their defense is really good. And Russell Wilson, I guess, is ahead of schedule, I think you could say, by a long shot. So maybe that's how they're better than I think. But I don't know. i, I got to see them. Like you said, they're running up the scores on bad teams. Let's see what they do against. Uh, this week will be a big test. The Bears are maybe toast. They Might were se- they were 7-1. They're 8-6. The, pa- the Packers clinched. They got hats and T-shirts after the game. They clinched that division. You know, they're going to get a home playoff game, and that's – that turns them into a scary team. Yeah. They got off to a slow start, but they've been really, really playing well the last, you know, the, the whole second half of, of the season. And, you know, they're going to be a tough team for a wild card team to beat. And then they're going to be a tough team, let's say, if they go to Atlanta, for example. That's going to be a tough game. Yeah, them winning that game might help Minnesota, who also won this week. Uh, they're 8-6 and six right now. We said this schedule at the end was going to be brutal. They won their 2-2 two and two through that brutal part of the stretch, and they got Houston and Green Bay left. So even if they 
If they lose to Houston, maybe Green Bay's got nothing to play for, set some starters. The interesting thing about them is right now they're in the playoffs, but they don't control their own destiny. Hmm. Because Washington somehow could get in ahead of them if they both finished. Like right if Washington must be strength of schedule or something. If Washington ends up being ten and six, they'd win the division. And if Vikings ended up, I don't oh, know, Bob Costin okay. explained it better than I can. Well, Minnesota can't win their division. Washington still can. Right. Yeah, but, okay. So there's a way that Minnesota, despite being the sixth seed right now, could be out because Washington ends up winning their division. Um, right now is a division leader. So if Washington was a wild card team, they would have the tiebreaker over the Vikings. That's That's how they could be out. I see. So that's why they're six right now because the Redskins hold tiebreakers over just about anyone if the Redskins can win their games they're going to be in the playoffs yeah and that that team as a Bills fan is is maddening because there's a team that gets their guy of the future and, uh, and spent a lot to spent do a it. lot to Didn't, do it had balls and drafted a backup so you I mean they they went with two in rookies. the fourth round yeah I mean it's not like they took a seventh rounder the Bills have nobody in the system and that's a whole not, that's another story but uh before we get before we get away from uh the Vikings we have to talk oh, about yeah. Adrian Peterson. I mean, the guy is just unbelievable. 24 carries, 212 yards, a touchdown. In his last eight games, he has 1,313 yards rushing. That is the most yards ever in an, an eight-game eight span in any part yeah, of NFL history. I gave the stat last week. It was something like through seven through the past seven games, it was like 157-yard average. He only improved on it last week, and now he's on pace based on what he's done to uh, get that record. He's got Houston this week, which is a tough run defense, but I, I don't know. I What is he, about 259 yards away from the record or something like that? Or there, There's no way he doesn't. Barring injury, uh, there's, there's no way he doesn't get that record. He's just too good. Uh, he's all their offense. He's outgaining his quarter. He had 212 yards rushing. His quarterback had 131 yards passing. So over that eight-game stretch, he's considerably outgained his quarterback. When that has to be, in this era of quarterbacks, that has to be uh, noted too. And we'll talk more about that on uh, on the other show. So uh, we'll get to that. The Broncos. Did what the Broncos have been doing for the last nine weeks, win. Yeah, hottest team in the league. Uh, Cardinals have won their first game in nine weeks, or ten weeks, beating the Lions. Right, they were 4-0, and finally they won a game. Yeah, so Tough year for the Lions. Who have given up, it looks like. Uh, Texans reaffirmed... uh, They got hats and t-shirts as well. Yeah, we we called that game... uh, They they were gonna come out strong after the Colts will still make the playoffs and they'll be happy to be in the playoffs and that's gonna be a good enough for their season. Dolphins beat the Jags, nothing to talk about there. Panthers beat the Chargers, same there, really nothing to talk about. Although I guess I blew a decision five on fantasy calling Denario Alexander. No catches. Sure fire. No catches in that game. Disappointing. Remarkable. Only three targets, so maybe you blame the quarterback there. Uh, Steelers and Cowboys was a great afternoon game. Ben Roethlisberger played great all day. Basically carried his team into overtime and then was picked off on the opening drive of overtime. And the Cowboys got what was a huge win for yeah, them. Yeah, saved their season, really. They're, they're right in the thick of it. And still. they play the Redskins on Week 17. 
So oh, if go. both teams win this week, week 17 essentially will be a game for the NFC East Championship, and I'm sure that game will immediately be flexed to Sunday oh, Night yeah, Football yeah. if they both win this week. Raiders beat the Chiefs in an all-time classic where Janikowski kicks five field goals to the Chiefs nothing. Uh, 49ers beat the Patriots. Uh, we amazing were, game. We were wrong about that. And, but it was uh, an amazing game. I mean, 31-3 to at the beginning of the third quarter, and then Tom Brady does what only yeah, Tom Brady probably can do. He just turned on. The Falcons kind of shifted away from playing man-to-man to going to some zone, and Tom Brady picked it apart. And you could see the pass rushers getting tired. And when Tom Brady has tired pass rushers and his own defense, he'll kill you. And he did. And then when Michael James, when the score was tied at 31, bailed the 49ers out with a big kick return. Now, that game might be a huge game in that it might cost the Patriots home field advantage. Because right now they got Denver and Houston in front of them. Yeah, if, they're, they're going to have to play an extra game. If it doesn't cost them, to me, that's a that might even be – it's one of them games that you lose, but maybe you don't feel too badly after the game. You you got you got behind, you couldn't do anything, and then all of a sudden you flipped the switch and figured out that defense. They put up 34 on arguably the best defense in the league. So uh, the Patriots know their defense isn't that great, or Patriots fans know their defense isn't that great, so – you don't want the 49ers putting up 41 on you, but the fact that they figured it out and won the second half, and especially the fourth quarter handily, I wouldn't be too too bummed if I were a Patriots fan, except, like I said, losing that home field advantage. And we'll talk with Tannier and um, Trotter about the significance of the game and Colin Kaepernick and that whole decision as well later. And, and the Monday night game was maybe one of the worst games of the year, uh, definitely the worst primetime game of the year. Jets do everything they possibly can to lose the game. Six and, turnovers, right? And lose it 10-14 to 14 in, in Jets fashion this year, which basically uh, sounds like it's going to cost Mark Sanchez's job. All right, let's move on. All right, my second thing is just kind of a rundown of a couple big baseball moves. The Mets traded Ari Dickey to the Blue Jays for uh, a bunch of prospects, really. Some good ones. I mean, I, I don't follow baseball close enough to – in general, and definitely not close enough to know the, the prospects in the minor leagues and all that, but uh, a couple big-name prospects, but it's weird to see the Mets trading away. Well, it was the right move for the Mets because he's at his all-time value, and the Mets yeah. are ready to compete. That's true. So they're never going to get what they got for R.A. Dickey at any point other than that day, and I think R.A. Dickey and the Mets understand that. I'm sure there's no hard feelings between the organization and Dickey. I think it was the right move for both sides. And the other big move is Josh Hamilton to the Angels, and I guess... Uh, the that was an t- 11th hour deal from what I hear. The Angels kind of sweeped in and stole them. Really? The Angels are now, I guess, a heavy favorite in Vegas to, to win it all next year. They have five outfielders. Interesting. That could start on pretty much any team in Major League Baseball. Interesting. Yeah, and I was going to kind of go with Dickie too with number two, but I guess instead I'll kind of shift a little bit to the Blue Jays and talk about what the significance of the trade is for them. Hopefully it means they're going to try to compete. This isn't the first move they've made this offseason. They've been shifting their team all offseason, and the Red Sox haven't done much. On the same day that Josh Hamilton was being introduced in Anaheim, they were introducing Shane Victorino. Um, and they weren't a very good team last year, so I don't know how much they've improved. The offseason still has a way to go. The Yankees are trimming payroll. They're not going to have A-Rod till at least June. And what kind of A-Rod will they have with back-to-back 
hip surgeries. So you might look at the Toronto Blue Jays right now as the favorites in the American League East, believe it or not. Wow, yeah. And um, if Dickie can have a season like he had last year, and the other players that they've brought in and the team that they have in place, they're going to be a very, very, very tough team. So I guess just to add on for my number two to what you stated in yours, look out for the Toronto Blue Jays. They're going to be a serious contender in the American League this year. My last thing this week, short and sweet, we're going to do a lot of, uh, later on we're going to do, instead of our pick four, we're going to do a year in review segment. And the best article I think maybe I've read all year (laughs) comes from our friend John Wertheim uh, at Sports Illustrated, writing about Ishpeming High. It's a Michigan high school and their football team and the kind of drama that really is stranger than anything Hollywood could write and uh, it's sad it's happy I mean it, it's just an absolutely fantastic article so go check it out search for John Wertheim and Ishpeming I-S-H-P-E-M-I-N-G high in Michigan I think it's the most recent article he's written but uh, check that out it's it's absolutely fantastic and we always have those uh, best American sports writers and I imagine that'll be in it next year and by the way it doesn't get much better than John Wertheim period that's true he's one of the best sports writers in the country and he's one of the best guys to us yeah i mean he's treated us like i don't know bill simmons since (laughs) like episode three yeah he's been great he's been great so we love john all right my third thing a lot of people don't pay attention to college basketball until march right right well i stumbled upon something on saturday that was worth paying attention to butler went to number one indiana and beat them 88 to 86 with uh Basically an ISO play that led to a nice, sweet jump shot. 88-86, 2.3 seconds left on the clock. Indiana called a timeout, couldn't couldn't do anything with the ball. They basically threw up a half-court prayer. And Butler, who is also in Indiana, has state bragging rights currently, having beat the number one team in the country. And the significance of that is that Duke is now number one. And listen to this stat. Duke has been number one 123 weeks. Wow. That's 11 behind UCLA, who's been number one the most in the history of college basketball. And all of 31 of those 123 weeks have been since 1991. Wow. Yeah, that's So that impressive. puts into perspective what Duke has been to basket- college basketball in the last bunch of years. But, you know, there's no college football on Saturdays. And uh, maybe you're just sitting there flipping around, and every once in a while you can find a gem. I only saw the last, basically overtime, of the Butler-Indiana game, but it was exciting stuff, and it makes me look forward a little bit to March Madness, which is a great sporting event, even for a non-basketball fan. Sure. All right, so this is what we're going to do. We're we're finished with three things. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. Mike Tannier from Sports on Earth is going to join us. Uh, Then we're going to do five on fantasy. We're going to skip the book club today. We're going to do an interview with Roy McGregor. And then instead of pick four, since this is the last week of the show, instead of picking four games that nobody's going to remember by 2013, we're going to do our top four sports moments of 2012. So we'll be right back with Mike Tanier.
Our first guest today is from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and is a graduate of LaSalle University. He currently covers the National Football League for one of our favorite new websites on the internet, sportsonearth.com. I'd like to welcome Mike Tannier. Is that right? Did I get that right? I was supposed to ask you that beforehand, how you said your last name. but That's it. That, that's it. It's, it's Tannier. It's Tannier. So I kind of got it right with my Buffalo accent. You know, I'd probably say it like that most of the time, so... There you go. I, I, I'm used to that Buffalo accent, but once you get the Rocky theme going, I actually get out of breath just listening to it because <laughs> I imagine I imagine trying to walk up the art museum steps at this point uh, instead of even trying to run up them. Have you run them? Uh, as a, as a younger person, yes, and and you know what, I can still run them if I have to. You just have to have a cheesesteak waiting for me at the top. <laughs> um, but but uh, you know, it, it's right there, and you kind of watch uh, all the uh, all the tourists do it for you know, like because. Uh, Mike Mayock went crazy during the the Thursday night game. Like, what are these nitwits doing? A fictional character ran up those steps, so everybody else has to run up the steps. It's like, my goodness, Mike, calm down. It, it, it's a fun thing. It's a fun thing to do. Right, it's part uh, of culture. To, to go up the steps and then to jump up and down at the top of them. You know, I have a great Philadelphia story for you, which I think you'll okay. appreciate. Um, so I'm a big Pearl Jam fan. I've been to oh, almost 80 Pearl Jam shows. And it seemed like every Philadelphia is in reach, drivable, always usually on my list when I see the tour dates out. And usually I have to go to Camden, New Jersey, to this <laughs> hideous amphitheater, right, to see them. Mm-hmm. So, And the first time I went there was in 2000. And I guess Creed had played a couple weeks before. So okay. we were parking in the parking lot, and the guy said, make sure you guys stay on the... Um, property because yep. someone had their hand chopped off with a hatchet um, at before the Creed concert. I don't know if he was being serious or not. So like we were like clinging to the venue. So then finally, <laughs> a few years ago, I guess they decided it was time to take down the Spectrum, and Pearl Jam was the band that played the last four events in the Spectrum. Yes, and I went to the last two, so I was there. Um, and sitting directly behind the box of the owner of all the teams there. I can't think of his name right now. Later. Yeah, uh, and uh, was at the last event in the Spectrum, and uh, it was a pleasure. I-, I was waiting for you to say that sitting behind you at the Spectrum was a man with no hand. That's what I was, <laughs> that's what I was going for. Now, I'm just going to tell you and I'll tell everybody uh, you know, around the world in the Buffalo area, next time you come in and if you're going to... Uh, the Camden, the, the amphitheater there, what you want to do is get a hotel in Philadelphia, spend a little extra money, get a nice downtown hotel, and then take the River Ferry, which drops you off right there at that amphitheater. You can go see Pearl Jam. You can go see whoever is playing there. Uh, and, and then you hop right back over the Delaware River, and then you are in the historic and, and, and culturally you know, vivacious part of Philadelphia, and you can enjoy you know, the nightlife there. And... Um, you know, I, I live very close to Camden, and uh, yeah, you, you you cling to the uh, you cling to the two or three places there <laughs> that you uh, that nothing will no, no appendages will be removed during your uh, enjoyment of your stay. Do you have a uh, favorite moment that you spent in the Spectrum? Oh well, I was I was behind the stadium. Uh, I was excuse me, behind the um, the uh, what are the stage for a couple of Bruce Springsteen shows, uh, which was absolutely phenomenal, um, and. Uh, you know, I'm not. I'm actually not a big hockey fan. Also, I was never really there for the Flyers. Um, but uh, every once in a while, there were big five 
basketball games at the Spectrum, and a lot of times those were at the Palestra, and that's the most you know awesome, like historic. You know, you're really in a in a field house thing when you're going to see a Big Five. You know, let's say Alville Nova Temple, St. Joe's, uh, Penn basketball. But sometimes the games were too big, and, and I saw some excellent like double headers at that Spectrum. Awesome. So let's get to football. Um, and the first thing I want to ask you about is. What do you think the significance of what we watched on Sunday night is? Like, what do you think that game means for both teams, kind of the way it played out? I don't take anything away from any regular season game of the Patriots as any sign of vulnerability. I think there are some things we know about the Patriots, and one is that the way their defense is built, their defense is built that they're going to win games by scores of like 45 to 24, 45 to 28. This isn't a shutdown defense. So when you get on them a little bit and, and you start scoring some points on them, that's going to happen. That's not shocking. And we also had a rainy night, and we had a rainy night when there were a couple of fumbles and bouncing ball instances that went either way. Um, what it tells me about the 49ers is, you know, if there were doubts, uh, in terms of this team's capability, and there shouldn't have been doubts about this team's capability moving forward. Uh, they they demonstrated uh, an ability to stay with outstanding teams, um, to come back a, a little bit from that adversity at the end of that game, and, and to show that they could run a, a full-balanced offense. Uh, I, I was a little concerned in the last couple weeks that this was going to turn into like the Kaepernick Wildcat uh, and uh, no, even on a rainy night, they can throw, throw enough at you with their passing game, with the diversity of the running game, that they can go out there and be a, a, a Super Bowl, a heavy, maybe not the favorite, but well, close to being the favorite of the Super Bowl team coming out of the NFC. You know, we've been smacking the Falcons in the face on this show all time, all all year long. We've been disrespecting the Falcons, disrespecting the Falcons. <laughs> you know, every week they're the worst eleven and one team I've ever seen. You know, all kinds of things like that. And they went out, and I, I guess they made quite a statement against the Giants, who had crushed the Saints the week before. Uh, what do you, does that matter at all, or is it still for the Falcons about winning in the playoffs? There's a degree of that. I, I think if there was a nervousness inside the locker room, and I think if there was a nervousness among the guys about what, who they really were, I think they answered some of those questions. Some of the questions they answered for like the ranking file fan or for the, you know, for the ESPN guys or whatever, they, they really don't matter. They matter in our minds and in, and in our hearts, but not in theirs. Uh, but, but it, you know, it's good to have a game like that. Um, what, what I saw coming out of that is the secondary playing very, very well. And I think one of the strengths of that team is supposed to be the secondary. Uh, when they lost Grimes early in the season, that was a problem. They played a couple games without Asante Samuel, and people like to, to, to diss Asante Samuel, but he brings a lot to the table even though he can't tackle anyone. Um, and, and getting that back, that they show that, that they can be that team. I still think of them as the best team in the, in the NFC. Sometimes uh, I weaver in that <laughs> a little bit because you, you see what you saw on Sunday night, and it was impressive. But all around, they look like a team that they're solving some problems. Secondary looked better. Running game looks better now. They used Jaquiz Rogers a little more, and they're not married to this this Michael Turner thing. And they're a team that is putting themselves in a great position to be at home, be in a dome, um, have some time to, to rest from injuries, and come out and face what is in the NFC a group of very, very flawed play- playoff teams. 
Yeah, and, and that brings us to the Giants and the three-way tie now in the NFC East with the Redskins at top. And the Redskins own a lot of tiebreakers in a lot of different scenarios. I think that they're in very good shape. Uh, but what do you? How do you kind of handicap the NFC East and the three teams? Cowboys being the ones I didn't mention uh, going forward here. I still think the Giants are going to pull it up. I'm wondering how much of that is just that, well, they're the Giants and they find right. a way thing. You know, watching that game, and there was a turning point early in that game, and uh, it was uh, a near interception thrown by Matt Ryan, and Chase Blackburn gets in front of it, and he bats it down and kind of rolls off of his fingertips. And I'm sitting next to somebody and saying, well, you know, there's about, there's about 50, 60 linebackers in the NFL who pick that pass off and maybe get a big run back. You know, Chase Blackburn's not one of them. That's not necessarily a, a, an indictment of Blackburn, but Blackburn is like a, a special teams ace and a try-hard guy and everything who's been starting all these games. And that's where the Giants are in a lot of places with their overall talent level. They've got the high-effort, supremely coached guy who, if you need that super-duper special play, he doesn't give you that special play. And they've only got a couple guys on the roster who give you that special play, guys in the front four, Victor Cruz. Um, the flip side of that is the Cowboys have nothing but special play guys. Um, and then when you turn around and need them to kind of grind out a win by, you know, by being sequential in their offense uh, or, or being really stout in the defense, they don't give that to you. Yeah, it's, a very tricky, it's a very tricky thing, but yeah, when you get into tiebreakers, the other thing I look at is that the Giants put themselves in a bad position with losses, lost to the Cowboys, lost to the Redskins, or lost to the Eagles early in the season, where um, if you ask me right now who's going to come out of this, I think it might wind up being the Redskins with an easier schedule coming forward the next couple games. Giants have to go into Baltimore, playing another team with the back to the wall, and it could be, very, it could be a very bad situation. And we could have an absolutely fantastic uh, week 17 game between the Redskins and the Cowboys, if I'm not mistaken. I think they do get each other. I don't have it in front of me. And that, and that would be uh, really something, yeah. yeah, lots of storylines, lots of history behind it. Yep. And, and a couple of teams that you're really kind of, you know, still getting a handle on. I think we know what the Redskins are when Griffin's out there uh, and, and, and what they can do, you know, very, very ball-control-oriented team. And the Cowboys remain this kind of mystery because it seems like they, they show up with like a seven-point deficit in the fourth quarter and Romo makes a couple of wacky plays and then something crazy happens on the other end and they come away with a win. I, I, I still don't have a handle on them as being like a real playoff team. Yeah, if you're looking for – I'm sure everyone at NBC right now is going to be watching this week saying, <laughs> let's go Cowboys, let's go Redskins, we'll flex <laughs> that game in there, baby, and you guys play for that division. They love that kind of thing. So, all right, AFC, we haven't talked much about it. We did mention the Patriots a little bit. The Broncos, obviously the hot team there. I can't even remember the last time they lost. I think they're, what, up to eight games in a row now, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And one thing about the Broncos that I think people overlook is, depending on who they're playing, often they have the best player on the field, whether their offense is on or their defense. I think Von Miller is almost to that point where a lot of the games they play, he's the best player out there when he's out there. And the defense, I think, is a little underrated. We focus so much on Peyton Manning, and you can agree or disagree, that I think one of the Broncos' strengths that people are overlooking is their defense. Oh, absolutely. Their defense is a huge strength. Von Miller, I mean, he, he's not going to win Defensive Player of the Year because J.J. Watt's having such a phenomenal right. year and Alvin Smith chasing a 
sack record. But Von Miller has been a difference maker all along. They've got other guys. You know, you've got Elvis Dumerville. They've got Champ Bailey, who's sort of like the Peyton Manning of defense, the, the, the veteran, you know, who can, who can kind of get things done. So much of that. Uh, and, and what you had early in the year with that team was a team facing the craziest, most difficult schedule in the world. And, um, Still coming out and kind of developing, uh, you know, their offensive identity with Peyton Manning. That's not a, Peyton Manning's style of doing things. It's not something you just flip a switch and and, and you can do, you, you know, with the timing of the passing game and stuff like that. And, and, and so they lost three games early, and people kind of wrote them off as as this kind of five hundred level team. They were never that. Now they're going out there and uh, demonstrating that against good opponents like the Ravens, good struggling opponents like the Ravens. And the other big advantages they have is look at the, the division they play in. That put them in a great position to springboard forward. And I believe they also they have another challenged opponent this week. Don't they have another game that is kind of not that, uh, you know, not, not that impressive on the schedule coming they, forward? I'm they finish with Cleveland and Kansas City. Oh my goodness, that's right, I have it right in front of me, Cleveland, where, they're, where, the, where the rookies are questioning the coach, and all the storylines coming out is who's going to be next year's coach. Uh, right, so they come in with this, and, you know, home field advantage going through Denver is still a big possibility, especially after what happened on Sunday night, um, and that's going to be, uh, that could be bad news for some ASC teams who don't play particularly well in weather. You know, the Texans are a team that I'm wondering if they've... They've lost two games, and it's been the two biggest games on their schedule, basically. Mm-hmm. They lost the very first game they ever played on Sunday Night Football. I believe it was to the Packers, if I recall yep. correctly. Mm-hmm. And then they played another huge game, which um, was against New England on a Monday night, and they got embarrassed again. Are they a team, maybe like I think of the 88 Bills who had a lose to the Bengals in the AFC Championship game, or the first Peyton Manning team that went 13-3 and and lost to the Titans. I know they were in the playoffs last year, but are they maybe the team this year that is going to need to take a really tough loss to come back next year and be a team that can win? I'm not sure, and one of the things you saw, the two big losses... Packers and, and uh, Patriots, two teams, very explosive passing teams, four or five wide receiver sets, or in the case of the Patriots, using the tight ends and backs as receivers, spreading everything out and trying to mount a big lead on you. And you look at what the Houston Texans are, and they're a team that wants to kind of take a 10-point lead on you and then hand off 16,000 pounds to Foster and go thump, 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 and then, you know, tee off on the pass rush. And they've got this one way of winning that is very, very good and works for them, the, the kind of offense based on the play action and the bombs and then the thump on the running game and the zone read, and then going out there with, uh, you know, with the pass rush. And they don't have a diversity of ways of winning. That's, not every team necessarily needs to have that, um, but it's a thing that could get them in trouble in the playoffs. And if we're going into next season, and I don't want to write them off because I think they could be a very dangerous team in the playoffs, but if we go to next season to say, what do we need to improve? Uh, one more playmaker, one more way of making themselves dangerous on offense could make them a team that says, well, not only can we step on your throats once we get a 10-point lead, but if we're down by 10, it's not going to completely snowball on us because our offense isn't Arian Foster runs and play-action bombs to, to Johnson. We've also got this other guy. We have these other dynamic guys. They don't really have that right now. Um, and that's, you know, if you see that they're going down like 13 nothing or something like that, it's like, uh-oh, 
do they have comeback ability? I think they did do it one time this year where they came back against somebody, um, but it's not something that you look at and say this is a this is a strength. I will admit that he is my second all-time favorite athlete. I had a grew up on a lonely street in Buffalo with a superstar athlete who ended up going to Oklahoma. He was much older than me. And since then, I've been a Sooners fan. He was Jason Belzer's backup at Oklahoma, did quite well for himself, Um, came home a hero here in Buffalo. We don't get many uh, D1 football players. All our D1 players are hockey players here. Um, But have you ever seen anything like what Adrian Peterson has done in the last eight weeks? 1,313 yards is the most in any eight-game span in the history of the National Football League, and he had <laughs> knee surgery on January 1st last year. Yeah, yeah. you know what? I, I'm kind of getting sort of emails from, from people asking the same question, and some of them are like editors, and I might have to really say, you know, have we seen anything like this? And I think I have to go research and see if we have seen anything like this, certainly in the last 25, 30 40 years, and, and, you know, I'm trying to look at this in terms of, you know, I went back and looked at Eric Dickerson's record in that particular season, and it was kind of spread out across the year. You know, he had a 200-yard uh, game here, 200-yard game there. It wasn't like this. And I went back, you talk about Buffalo going back to O.J. Simpson in the and what you saw at the end of that season was like silly time where they were just kind of feeding them, feeding them, feeding right. them the ball here. It wasn't what you're seeing now, which is, you know, him single-handedly taking a team, and none of them really have that element where the, the injury was so recent. You know, I, I talk to people, like, where should somebody be in their ACL um, rehabilitation at this point, which is, you know, like 11 months after the surgery, you know, and I get answers like, well, you know, uh, guys, we, we have them do hop-on-one-foot drills so that the, 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 um, the, the knee can handle, the ligaments can handle the shearing and stuff like that. But really, that's what a person's supposed to do? Not rush for 212 yards against a stacked defense? It, it, it's, it is absolutely amazing and it's delightful and then you know it's something when you talk about having the the um the redskins and the cowboys i hope somebody puts the vikings on uh, a marquee game a marquee game so more fans can see them in the next two weeks as he tries to break that record because he's kind of doing it quietly and it's like the third or fourth or fifth game on the schedule for most fans fans who uh, aren't vikings fans or don't have him on their guys by the way are jumping for joy right and you know this guy I remember them describing his knee as shredded. And I've been following him since he was 17 years old. I'm not really into recruiting like some people are, but when you're trying to get the five-star recruit from, you know, Palestine, Texas, from Texas, you know, that opens your eyes a little bit. And I watched some highlights, and I told anyone who would listen that if this guy comes to Oklahoma, he's going to be one of the best players who ever played at Oklahoma. And everyone told me, well, you're too young. You don't understand Oklahoma football. And sure enough, he was one of the best players who ever played at Oklahoma, and his last run ever there was a 25-yard run right through the Boise State defense into the end zone in overtime. After breaking his collarbone six weeks earlier, he should have never even played in that game, and he did because that's the kind of kid he is. And then I told everyone he'd be one of the best players in the NFL, one of the best running backs in NFL history, and his rookie year he broke the single game record, and now he has a chance to break the single season record. And then what's next? Maybe the all-time Emmett's record? I mean, this guy... This guy I, oh, my God. I, I got to stop because, like I told you, 
<laughs> well, what I can tell you is, is when you do this, when you cover the NFL, you know, there, there's thousands of rank and file guys, and then there's dozens, especially if you've been doing it for years, dozens and dozens of guys who are, you know, all pros for a couple of years, bring a lot of things to the table that are above and beyond. And, and then, you know, in, in every generation, every couple of years, you know, there's a five or six different players, just like different, like, like at, a, at a level above that, that sort of Jim Brown level that, uh, of what they are doing, both what they're capable of athletically and what they bring to the table in terms of like what you talk about, playing, with, playing through pain and rehabilitation, which is you know, kind of a sign of, uh, of a dedication that goes beyond just like being ready for the game. And I think what we're really seeing now, if we had any doubt before, is that's what Peterson is. He's on that special, different all-timer plane, and, and, you know, that's a plane that guys like Barry Sanders get to, that a lot of guys that we see rush for, you know, 1,300 yards two or three times uh, don't belong on. We know how fast Percy Harvin is, right? Mm. In August, in August in training camp, Adrian Peterson was winning four out of ten races up a hill against Percy Harvin. <laughs> now, let me just ask one question Yeah. on that. What was Leslie Frazier doing making Adrian Peterson run up hills in August? And I guess the answer is Peterson was probably volunteering and insisting that he did it. But if I'm, but, but, but if I'm the Vikings coaching staff in August and Peterson's <laughs> walking around saying, hey, you know, I'm ready to play, I might tell him to run some reps or something like that. When it comes time to run up the hill, I handcuff him to a goalpost so he doesn't do it. Because there's no way that I want to have the press conference saying, well, you know, Peterson, it turned out he re-injured himself because he was trying to chase Percy Harvin up a hill. Uh, that being said, you know, hey, no, no harm, no foul. He, he did it, and he probably was, like, dragging, like, four assistant coaches trying to stop him with him. But still, uh, you know, a little bit of common sense on that one. So, obviously, kind of finishing up here, we have one of the greatest years ever for postseason awards, which is usually doesn't really mean anything. But there's so much intrigue this year because a couple of them – could go in so many different directions. You mentioned defensive mm-hmm. players of the year and the people involved there. But what do you do with comeback player when you Dang. have you have really three guys because everyone forgets the linebacker in Carolina who had three straight shredded uh, ACLs and you know is doing what he's doing this year. I can't think of mm-hmm. his name for whatever reason. Thomas Davis. Thomas Davis. Well, you said exactly. Davis or Beeson because both of them. Uh, you could give you could give them a joint like comeback. Teammates of the Year award, like a special one for right. It. It's so you got Davis, and then you got Peterson, and you got Manning there, and comeback player, and right. then maybe Brady stamped his ticket for MVP on Sunday, maybe because everyone was watching that, even though they didn't win. Just the way he brought them back, I mean, I was blown away. And then right. you have Manning, maybe in that discussion as well, and then you have Peterson in that discussion as well. Do you have right. a thought on those two at all? All right, I got Peterson for MVP. Uh, because this is, not only is this special, but uh, as I was talking to a couple people, uh, that's a 3-13 and team without Adrian Peterson. That's what the Vikings are. And they're still hanging out in the playoffs and still hanging around the wild card because of him. I've got Manning for Comeback Player of the Year. I appreciate what guys like Beeston and Davis have done. Phenomenal. Uh, Manning, obviously, is just, uh, just something bigger than the world. The problem with Peterson with that is uh, it winds up being an off-season injury. He got hurt at the end of last week, he, last, the last week of last year. So he didn't necessarily miss time on the field. And it kind of becomes like an odd precedent to say that, to say, well, a guy was hurt in the offseason and we're giving him a comeback. And you and, could kind uh, of say Welker already did it too. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? Once I give Peterson the uh, the MVP, I don't worry about him for comeback. I feel like I've covered my bases. Right. Um, defensive player of the year, I'm going to keep watching. You know, I mentioned on, on Twitter Alden Smith, but I wasn't married to it. You know, depending on I, – I think I wrote that like a couple hours after he had a, the interception – 
against the Patriots. So J.J. Watt's a very good, is probably the front runner in that. Um, let's not forget Rookie of the Year, which was sewn up uh, a couple right. of weeks ago. You thought with RG3. Now RG3 misses a week. He could miss another week. Russell Wilson's taking a team to the playoffs. Luck is taking a team to the playoffs. And um, I'm not going to cast my vote until I see one more week this year. If Russell Wilson goes out there and beats the, the San Francisco 49ers um, with, with a convincing, while well, RG3 is, say, hobbling, maybe missing another week, no offense, but if you're not there, you're not contributing to your uh, your performance. Um, maybe we should uh, not say this decision was made in October, and maybe turn it around and say three phenomenal rookies, and if you have to choose one, maybe it should be Wilson, or maybe it should be Locke if he has another amazing comeback. All right, last thing. Uh, you know, we asked people this in August. You got to see 15 games before we ask you. What's your Super Bowl pick at this point? Well, I guess coming still on the heels of that uh, New England-San Francisco game, I'm going to say a rematch. Um, but I'm just going to let you know, a couple weeks ago, I was still saying we're going to have the Falcons against the Texans in the all uh, the Erasure Bowl. Um, and <laughs> we could still very well have that, where, you know, the, 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 the tortoise so often beats the hare in these things. Um, but, you know, since you're holding me to, to it right now, I'm going to say another Patriots versus Niners. Uh, we're going to see that in the Super Bowl. All right, so it's sportsonearth.com. Mm-hmm. It's Mike Tanier. Did I get it right that time? That sounds beautiful. Okay, so beat my Buffalo accent there. And <laughs> uh, really, we love Sports on Earth. You've heard Tommy Tomlinson a bunch of times on this show. You've heard Joe Pisnanski on this show. It's a wonderful website. I highly recommend it. Thank you for so- taking so much time with us today. I didn't really mean for it to be this long. I think we just kind of got going there and... Next thing I knew it was 11 o'clock, so thank you very much. We really appreciate it and look forward to talking to you again in the future. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Anytime, give me, a, give me a call. Thank you. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonette, Ocho Cinco, TJ Cushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right, we have to thank Mike Tannier for making his debut on the show. That was awesome. He was great. Can't wait to have him on again. Um, He talked a lot to me before and after the interview, and I really appreciate all the advice he gave me, and I'd like to thank him for that and look forward to uh, having him on the show. I think he can be one of our... Our staples. You know, we got our staples. Yeah, yeah. We got our Lee Jenkins of the world. We got our Worthines, as we right. mentioned. You know, Dave, Dave Damashak. We got our guys like that, and I feel like Mike can be one of those guys. Cool. He was just, you know, that kind of nice. But on to five on fantasy. Guess who's in the championship game of the Listener League again, Don? It's not me. No, it's not you. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's me, the backspacers, as I'm called in that league. Uh, and you know what? My opponent made a fatal, fatal error in fantasy football. What's that? He talked shit. Uh-oh. He called me out on uh, on Twitter and said that uh, Hungry Hungry Raji was coming for me. And Hungry Hungry Raji went home very sadly <laughs> to the third place game. So uh, congratulations to the sixth seed, Lauren Tan Hills, who we mentioned last week was not a 208-point roster. They were a 155-point roster this week, so that's a hot team. And I'm wow, a little bit yeah. nervous going into the championship game. But uh, it's Backspacers versus 
Lawrence Tandhills and Hungry Hungry Raji versus Avatarish Jackson in another successful listener league. Thank you to everyone who participated. People love the pun fantasy names. I never got a, I never had a pun fantasy name. Like with a player name in it. Yeah, people, I like to go with that, I like to go with references to things that you like. That I like. Yeah. You know, like Backspacers is a Pearl Jam record. I've always been the Beavers but uh because of an email address I have and uh you actually had a rule in your league that I had to be the Beavers. Yeah, that was the rule. <laughs> yeah, and uh I have pretty much since we started this in every other league been the sportscasters. sportscasters yeah. yeah, so. All right, I got sits this week. I'm going to start with a guy that uh look, Calvin Johnson's having a phenomenal year uh in a season where it seems like everyone else on his team is a disaster and maybe quitting on the team or quitting in general. It's, I just don't think Matt Stafford is a great start this week against the Falcons. I think that's Thursday night. Call it a hunch. Back-to-back uh, weeks for him as a set. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's tough to say Stafford. It's tough to say any quarterback that in a game that you know he's going to be down and he has the best receiver in the league. But it was hard to find a guy that – was a non-obvious sit, so I went with a hunch a little bit. All right, my start is Andrew Luck. Again, start your studs. Yeah. But if you're in a bind, he's the next best guy. He's at Kansas City, which should be a good matchup for them. They still need to solidify their playoff spot. He might be your stud. It's yeah, possible you drafted be. Rivers, maybe like waited on quarterback at Rivers, and or even like a Tony Romo. Like he might be a better start. Than but when I looked at like the top ten obvious guys yeah. that everyone's going to start, the next best guy on the list to start was Andrew Luck. Yep. So if for some reason you don't have you're at this point in your season and you don't have one of the top ten guys to start, he's probably the best option at Kansas City. All right, my running back, uh, this guy you're not obviously benching, but I would uh, temper expectations, and that's Ray Rice. Uh, right after firing their offensive coordinator, which everyone thought, oh, this is going to be good for Ray Rice. He doesn't get the ball enough. He doesn't get the ball enough in the fourth quarter. He puts up 12 for 38 yards rushing with three receptions for three yards with the new offensive coordinator. Not a good stat line at all. And Baltimore is kind of a team that's going to fall ass backwards into the playoffs, it looks like. And they play the Giants coming off a big, embarrassing loss. And even though they're at home, I, I don't love Ray Rice this week. You know, I bet Ray Rice and Doug Martin really ruined a lot of fantasy seasons oh, last yeah, week. absolutely. Both of those guys put up really, really ugly numbers. Uh, my start at running back is DeMarco Murray. Don't let yourself be fooled by what New Orleans defense did to Tampa Bay last <laughs> week. I Trust me, that was an anomaly. <laughs> I've been watching this defense get gashed by running backs all year long. And what happened last week, the reason that the Saints shut down Doug Martin the way they did, was because Josh Freeman was an absolute disaster. Yeah. And he threw the ball to the Saints over and over and over again. And Drew Brees took the ball and threw it into the end zone, just like I predicted he would do on this show last week. It's amazing sometimes to me how in tune I can be with the Saints. I'm very, <laughs> very, very rarely wrong about what the result of their game is going to be. And that's why later when we go over pick four, you're going to see that my double up on them was perfect. Yeah. Because I knew that that game was going to happen that way. But don't let that fool you about the defense. 
DeMarco Murray will have a great day against the Saints defense. I'm almost positive of it. All right, my wide receiver sits this week. Uh, I'm actually going to go. There's no stud here, so I wanted to be a little more broad. I'm going to say sit all of your Seattle and San Francisco wide receivers. That might be pretty obvious information, but on the flip side of that, I'm also kind of telling you I like the running backs in this game. They're playing two really, really good run defenses, but a little bit of strategy there. If the game's going to be close, the running back's going to be relevant for four quarters. And I feel like this game's going to be close. They're playing each other, correct? They're playing each other. So I think it's going to be a close game. There's not going to be much need to air it out and go past wacky because I don't see either team blowing the other one out. So I like the running backs, don't like the receivers. So you probably like Colin Kaepernick, too, because that could mean a lot Running of triple, for him. Sure. triple read zone probably option or whatever. don't mind Russell Wilson either for the same thing. It's gonna be a, There shouldn't be a lot of mistakes made in this game because they, neither team should be put in a position where they have to make mistakes. All right, my wide receiver said I'm going to go a little deep, a guy who hasn't been all that fantasy relevant for since the third week of last season when he looked like he was going to be the steal of everyone's draft and then he tore his ACL. I'm going to go with Kenny Britt of Tennessee against Green Bay. Green Bay is in the second half of the league in terms of pass defense. They're not awful, but they're not good. I expect Green Bay to get ahead. I expect Tennessee to have to throw, and he seems like the guy you'd throw it to. Um this is not a number three. This is probably a flex, you know what I mean, type of a start. Right. Um, but, again, we're in a position where if you're to this point, just start the obvious players. And if you're in a bind, this is a guy that can help you. That's kind of the way I went this week with my starts. If you're in the championship or if you're in a third-place game and – your studs are in a spot where you're worried about them for some reason or someone's injured or you're one guy short, that's where a Luck or a Murray or a Brick can really right, help right. you. Or Murray, you're probably starting anyway. but Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so last piece of business is we have three awards that we kind of wanted to give out for the end of the season for fantasy. And um, there's going to be no other time to do it since by – time we come back in 2013 it's going to be irrelevant right so the first one is fantasy mvp and this was so easy for me it's adrian peterson there's no doubt about it the way he's played the last eight weeks he's carried teams into finals and the where you drafted him third round maybe fourth right you know maybe in a crazy league you had to get him in the second who knows yeah i think when we did the midway awards i think uh my MVP was Robert Griffin III. I'm going to also say Adrian Peterson, though. You just you can't – even if you reach, quote-unquote, reached and took him at the end of the first round, you're getting all-time great numbers from him. So he's, he's a steal no matter where you got him in the draft because you didn't take him in the top eight or nine picks. And so. we mentioned that we play, played each other in a semifinal last week, and you beat me because of Adrian, Adrian Peterson. Peterson. Right. Otherwise, that's pretty much a dead-even game that could have went either way. Right. But having Adrian Peterson, it was the reason you won, and I think it's it's a hands-down award. Yeah, I think you said the next award was uh, the steal. steal of the draft. I think that's got to be Adrian Peterson. Like I said, even if you took him at number 10 in the first round, you're getting all-time great number one overall statistics from him. So I, I don't know who you would make the argument for. Maybe. 
The only argument Andrew Locke, Robert Griffin. Yeah, I, I picked Robert Griffin the third just to pick someone different. Right. You know, kind of like if uh, the voters decide to give uh, Peyton Manning MVP and right. You know, Adrian Peterson comeback or something like that. I kind of went that way. You maybe could have argued Doug Martin, but his last month or so has been average to below average and probably cost people their playoffs. Yeah, so. he cost a lot of people in the playoffs. That's why I. You, I stayed away from him, and I think RG3 is the only person or Andrew Luck that you can make an argument other than Adrian Peterson. And then the last one we wanted to give was Bust, and I'm still sticking with Chris Johnson. He got lucky to break a run last night. If not, he only had 20 yards rushing. He's had six single-digit point games this season and two games with only 10 points. So that means eight games from a guy you probably had to pick in the 10th round. First round. First round, excuse me. Top 10. Uh, you got 10 points or less. Yeah, that'd be an easy one. Uh, I'll say a guy that's probably been equally bad and less usable, but, I mean, I hate to beat up a guy for injuries, but I'm going to say Darren McFadden. He came out week one, I think had a lousy day rushing, but had like 15 catches or something stupid, so it looked like it was going to be a decent pick no matter how he was going to get the yards, through the air or on the ground, and just constantly injured again. He's really was overshadowed for most of the year by their fullback uh Marcel Reese or whatever his name is, that guy looks exciting and fast and big. But uh, another disappointing season for Darren McFadden. For all the re- I, he's going to be the same guy next year, I imagine. You're going to be afraid to draft him, but he's got the talent. And and maybe you're pissed off that you didn't start him this week. This week, yeah. You know, if you did, if you if you didn't. But uh, real quickly, we didn't do it before. Uh, Matt Schaub was. Don start last week, 261 yards and a TD, decent call there. Matt Forte was his start at running back, decent call in a PPR. He had over 120 yards total and five catches. His games are all, I mean, if he got 10 touchdowns a season or so. The problem is they love to throw the fade to Marshall. Yeah. It's almost guaranteed. They get inside the five-yard line and they throw it up and Marshall jumps up and grabs it. Yep. Um, and Denaro Alexander was just Terrible. a bad call. So you went, you know, I'll give you one and a half yeah. to one and a half. Uh, I had Matt Stafford being my best call of the year, 246 yards and three interceptions, not what you want in semifinals week. No, Sean Moreno was a miss. He had 118 yards and a TD. And I warned you about Larry Fitzgerald. I hope you kept him out. Despite blowing them out, he only had four catches for 22 yards. There's actually a really interesting article. I can't remember where it was. But that discussed that if you can assign a value to turnovers, which they, I think they came up with negative 45 yards. Because basically if you turn it over rather than punt, like the net punt average would be about 45 yards. That you can make the argument that the Cardinals would have been better punting every time they got the ball rather than playing on offense. But then how could they win? Well, they couldn't. <laughs> but, I mean, if you say a turnover is worth negative 45 yards because of field position, they're actually at a net negative yardage-wise. Wow. Because their quarterbacks are so terrible. Go Cardinals. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with uh, Hall of Famer Roy McGregor. Our next guest is from Canada. 
and is a graduate of Laurentian University. In November, he was honored by the Hockey Hall of Fame, winning the 2012 Elmer Ferguson Award at a luncheon in Toronto. He is one of the most established and acclaimed writers to ever appear on this podcast. He has authored over 40 books, a mix of fiction, nonfiction, sports, and politics. His latest, Wayne Gretzky's Ghost and Other Tales from a Lifetime of Hockey, is a greatest hits type collaboration of his very best hockey writing. He has been one of Canada's most talented journalists for years and has worked for the National Post, the Ottawa Citizen, the Toronto Star, and McLean's Magazine. Today he writes for the Globe and Mail, Canada's national newspaper. He has won numerous awards for journalism, including two national newspaper awards, several national magazine awards, and twice the ACTRA award as the best television drama writer in the country. In 2005, he was named an officer in the Order of Canada and was described in the citation as one of Canada's most gifted storytellers. He is making his third appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the talented, distinguished, and Hall of Famer, Roy McGregor. How are you doing today, Roy? <laughs> it's a little over the top, Stephen. <laughs> That's good, though. Thank you. Well, I just don't know what to leave out. You know what I mean? It's like there's not too many Hall of Famers who come on the show. You know what I mean? Like, Well, better, better to talk about stuff like that than to talk about the lockouts. You might as well just read the phone book. And right. I think people would be more content than if they had to talk about uh, legal suits and all the garbage that's going on with hockey. Yeah, so I think there's there's three things I want to do, and one of them is garbage, like you said, and then two are really fun. So let's just get the garbage out of the way really quick, and yeah. I don't even want to like go into it that deeply. I just want to... Don't worry, I can't. <laughs> uh, let's just... Okay, so everyone knows the NHL's on a lockout, and... Um, it seems like every time there's any optimism, the day ends with the exact opposite. In your opinion, do you think we'll see NHL hockey this year? Oh, I don't care. It's reached uh, Alice in Wonderland proportions. You know, everything up is down again. When you get a, a uh, organization like the National Hockey League spending uh, so much energy trying to bust a union, deliberately going after the union, and then you have the union decide it's going to decertify, and the NHL then goes to court to prove that the union is a union, you're dealing with utter insanity at that point. I really don't care. Not only do I not, not care, Stephen, and I really don't care either if anybody disagrees with me or not. I hope they don't go back. I hope they stay out for at least a year, and I hope when they do go back, they get punished to the point where they finally wake up and realize what the real world is all about. Yeah, you know, it's funny you End say, of rant. It's funny you say that because we have a lot of money banked with the Sabres as season ticket holders cuz you yep. know, they made us pay for playoff tickets that we never used last year and they keep that money and then they made us pay our monthly payments all the way through October before they finally stopped. And I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, if they come back and they tell me that they want to play a 40 game season only against Eastern Conference opponents, I don't want to waste that money. I want to tell them no. forget it. Save it, it and I'll come back next year. I worked through the last one. It was boring. I went right to the end of June and I never wanted the playoffs over so quickly in all my life. Yeah, so I'm with you. I, you know, I have a brother who plays D1 hockey at Yale. I went to the games last weekend and I didn't, I didn't even think of the NHL. And you know what? I can watch college hockey all year long and be just as satisfied. I'm not so sure that uh, college hockey and some of the junior hockey in Canada isn't actually superior 
to the National Hockey League. The National Hockey League has become so hyper-overcoached in the last couple of years that it's become a stalemate game. And, and at least at the college junior levels, you're dealing with uh, coaches who can't completely control their players and players who can take over games. So that I, I think that the product, at least the excitement of the product, is higher. The superstars aren't there, no. But the way the game is being played is far more interesting. How have you have you enjoyed getting to watch more hockey that isn't NHL hockey with the with the NHL gong? Like, have you had the opportunity to, as you yeah, say, lots. yeah, and you've enjoyed that? Well, I went to Binghamton, I went to Hershey, I've been up to Kirkland Lake, I've been to North Bay, I've been here in Ottawa, down in Toronto, been out west of Calgary watching the World Juniors prepare, I've been all over the place, and yeah, this is great hockey, it's great hockey being played every day, every hour of the day, every day of the week in this uh, continent, so, and you know what, it's not the NHL, and so what? <laughs> so, uh... I saw that it was Nugent Hopkins was named captain of the Canadian team. Are they the favorites this year? I think they always are, even yeah. though they haven't won in the last three years. But they certainly should be the favorites this year because every other time there's been a lockout, the Canadian team has been quite dominant to get all their players back. So you have Ryan Nugent Hopkins, who wouldn't be anywhere near a World Junior Tournament if it weren't for the NHL lockout. Yeah. How's the U.S. And the, the, the American uh, just the American team is lacking a player because like, his name escapes me and it shouldn't escape me because I'm in Ottawa and he's an Ottawa Senators prospect, but he's he's not going to be allowed to play now because of uh, suspension handed down in the Canadian leagues. Oh, jeez, that's no good. <laughs> we need all the help we can get. <laughs> um, all right, so f- forget them, forget the NHL. Let's move on for that. I got more fun things to talk about, and the first thing I want to ask, well, I mentioned in in the open and i congratulated you before we started or at least i should have uh tell us a little bit about the experience at the hockey hall of fame i know last time we talked you were getting ready for it and you said the thing you're looking forward to most was getting razzed by your buddies at your senior men's league games (laughs) how did everything play out pretty much that way certainly got ridiculed by my my friends but I got ridiculed at the hockey hall of fame too which was quite delightful A, a gentleman came up and asked me if i wouldn't mind uh, having my picture taken with his daughter. He was quite nervous about it. And I had my Hall of Fame jacket on, so I was feeling pretty puffed out. <laughs> and then he uh, got his daughter into the picture, and he, and he said, uh, Cindy, w- would you mind, could you get in a little closer to Mr. Ellis, please? <laughs> I said, what? Well, you're Ron Ellis. And I said, no, I'm not. Well, who are you? And I said, who am I? He said, well, I don't remember you from Team Canada 72. Well, I'm not a player. I'm a journalist. So he yanked his daughter away and never even took a picture. <laughs> oh, my God. That's hilarious. How was the luncheon? Was Did you go out? Because was the family and friends were there and really had a wonderful time. Was it Rick you Jarrett and Rick? was there from the yeah. Buffalo Sabres, and he brought his mother down. His 92-year-old mother came to the to the ceremony, so it was very nice that way, too. Yeah, we love we love some Rick Jenner out here in Buffalo, so it was well, really... He's a really class guy, and... I know so many. I know he's born born in Canada, but mm-hmm. he's been broadcasting for an American team for so long. But the fact of the matter is, there's not a single person in Canada that doesn't admire his calls of the game and his knowledge of the game. Yeah, we uh, we sort of dread the day that he um, no longer wants to do it. Although his son has been uh, calling games for the AHL affiliate of the Sabres for quite a few years and has filled in for him a few times, and seems like he could 
he could fill his shoes. Well, maybe. Yeah, I've heard he's quite good. Yeah, I uh, think he's quite, Rick, quite good. Rick threatens to retire each year, I, I've been told. <laughs> Harry Neal tells me half of his job is making sure Rick doesn't go anywhere. It seems like it's vice versa, too. It seems like once one of them decide that they're not going to do it, it seems like the other one's not going to do it. Yeah, and they're yeah. both gems. But, uh, yeah. you know, at some point you might want to step back and, and retire. All right, so... I mentioned in the uh, I mentioned in the open. Oh, one last thing about the Hall of Fame. Did you go to the uh, to the other ceremony, the players? Oh, ceremony? sure. Yeah, and that, yeah. and what did that you? Was part of the whole thing it was great. It was four players that uh, all of whom deserved to be in. All of whom were class players and class acts, and it was quite uh, quite thrilling. To, you know, to talk to them and be there with them, and then to see them and to listen to them. And I was blown away by Adam Moat's speech stood up there without a single note, he never took a pause for breath, it seemed, and he listed every single person he needed to thank, and he never had a single, you know, or a uh-huh, or an um. It was just so, so articulate. What a day for him he had, huh? He named Coach and uh, named the hockey yeah, so, on the same day. That was nice. Um, I have to admit something to you that Pavel Burry is my all-time favorite athlete. And, oh, that's nice. Yeah, and um, actually... In between the last two elections, I had a chance to talk to Michael Farber, who's uh, on the uh, committee for electing players into the Hall of Fame. And uh, I like to think that my case that I laid out for him was a big reason that Pavel finally was enshrined in the Hall of Fame. I hope so. Uh, Pavel Berry played the single greatest game of hockey I ever witnessed. And very few people seemed to see it. Very few people ever seemed to talk about it. But it was the gold medal game in 1998 in Nagano. The semis, you mean? The Czech Republic. Oh, you think he played that better than even in the semis where he scored five goals? Yeah, yeah, I saw them all. And this game, uh, everybody got obsessed about Canada and Dominic Hasek at that tournament and the Americans trashing their rooms and everything like that. But in that gold medal game, which was won one to nothing by the Czech Republic, Never in my entire life have I ever seen a player try so hard or dominate the game so much as Pavel Berry did all futilely because no one could score in Hasek. Rush after rush after rush after rush all night long. It was a most incredible demonstration of hockey I have ever seen. A losing game, didn't score a single goal, didn't get a single point. That's the best game I've ever seen a human being play. That's an unbelievable, unbelievable thing, considering he scored five goals in the game before. And the yeah. the goal that he scored when he tipped it by Tepo Newman, who was in his prime at the time, and scored on a breakaway, I don't think I've ever seen a hockey player skating so fast with the puck. I, and, I, I mean, know. It, it was sensational in that tournament. It's funny that hardly you and I are probably the only two people on earth talk, <laughs> talk about it. Yeah, it was unbelievable, but... Uh, Okay, so now the fun part. We've been looking forward to this. You know I'm from Buffalo, New York, uh, which means as a Western New Yorker, I'm no stranger to Canada. Growing up a hockey player, having a brother who grew up a really serious hockey player, I spent many, many days in the Great White North and love Canada and love spending time there. Buffalo is in the Great White North. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know... One thing that I learned in Canada that I came to love is Canadian music, and I'm a huge fan of Rush, and congratulations to them. I'm finally making the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame after a ridiculous 14-year wait. Yeah. We're sorry about that here in America. I don't know what that was all about. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, 
I learned Canadian music growing up uh, playing hockey in Canada, and one of my favorite Canadian bands is the Tragically Hip, and they're a real favorite of many of our fans who are listen in Western New York and Southern Ontario, and um, you have a Wikipedia page, and I looked at it, and it's really, really short. It's funny. Someone should really, maybe I'll do it for you. I'll spend some time on it and get some real information on it. But basically, it says that you're an author who is an expert on Tom Thompson. <laughs> and that you've... Is that what it says? I don't know. I've never yeah, talked. that's about it. It's got, it basically says, you know, he's written for these publications, and he's a great journalist, and then the last couple of words are, and he's an expert on Tom Thompson and has written two books about him. Is that correct? Well, well, I don't know. I've heard before that uh, the vast, vast, vast number of those Wikipedia pages are written by the people themselves. Right, yeah, they are. That, that's Especially why I... politicians. <laughs> I, well, or they have their staff write them, so I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to put any stock in Wikipedia. Right. Well, that's why I asked if it's if if it's true. Do you do you consider yourself a, an expert on Tom Thompson? And have you? you I probably read? am as much as anybody else in the world, but uh, that's because everybody else is dead. <laughs> so we kind of <laughs> talked about having a little bit of fun at the end of this, since the lockout sure. was such a downer, and talking about a tragically hip song called Three Pistols." which right. starts with the two words, Tom Thompson. Yes. Uh, the first line of the song is, Tom Thompson came paddling past. I'm pretty sure it was him, and he spoke so softly in accordance to the growing of the dim. Now, I sent you the lyrics a couple times. I'm sure you've had a chance to... Oh, I know the song. Don't yeah, worry. Yep, and I'm sure you've had a chance to look them over. Why don't yes. you educate us a little bit on what Gordowney is talking about in Three Pistols? Well, I presume he or... One of his uh, bandmates went to Taylor Staten Camps in Algonquin Park, so that's where that would come from. That's why the obsession with Tom Thompson paddling by is now. Just to set it in context, in 1917, the summer of 1917, the man who would become Canada's most famous painter drowned mysteriously on that same lake, Canoe Lake. His body surfaced eight days later. There was fishing line wrapped uh, mysteriously around one ankle and a bad blow to the left temple of his his forehead. He was buried right away because his uh, body was deteriorating by his friends, but then he was supposed to be dug up that night and taken by a train down to his family's uh, plot. His family's quite well off down in Owen Sound. There was always uh, some doubt among the rangers and people, and my grandfather was one of the rangers uh, up there that he had ever been removed, but it was arranged by a woman called Winifred Trainer. Winifred Trainer's sister Marie was married to my great uncle Roy, so we were part of that family. She wow. was engaged to him. So that's where the lyrics come in about his bride of the woods hiding in the bushes there. And that's quite an accurate portrayal because what happened was the camp that I mentioned previously in the summer in July, the 16th of July 8th, when Tom went missing, they go up to the little cemetery in the hill where he was originally buried and they hold candlelight vigils and seances. Is that the little. Is is that mm-hmm. the Remembrance Day part of the song? Yes, what, exactly. Little girls and come so on Remembrance then, Day, placing flowers on his grave. Right, and they leave wildflowers on the grave, and she would go up there in a fury and rip them off because she believed, of course, and she had arranged it that his body was not there; it was back in in Leith. And what I was able to prove this last couple of years was that Tom's body was never moved; that in fact, 
he still lies there. And it was a big cover-up and a fraud by the uh, undertaker. And so it's a great story, and it's so nice to see that somebody like the Tragic of the Hip would, would glom onto it and do such a wonderful job on it and simply raise the mystery a little higher. It is Canada's greatest mystery, Canada's greatest love story, because we believe very strongly that this woman, Winifred, was left with Tom Thompson's child and had to go to the United States and give it up. And uh, just an amazing love, tragic story. Tell us a little bit about why it's called Three Pistols and what he means when he sa- I mean, this I know I'm putting you in a tough spot to yeah. analyze someone else's art, but I think you're doing a great job. Uh, <laughs> what does he mean by, I've been shaking all night long, by my, but my hands are steady? Because he says that many times in the song. Yeah. Well, Tom drank quite a bit. So he was, uh, he's, I think the expression there is that he was suffering from the DTs, but once he started to paint, he once he picked up his paintbrush, his hand was steady as a rock. Gotcha. I think that's what that is. As for the three pistols, I haven't got a clue, but as a lifelong Bob Dylan fan, I have to tell you, you don't have to know what certain lyrics mean to enjoy them. That's well, that's for sure. But wow, you you unlocked a lot of mysteries. I mean, I kind of figured that the Remembrance Day thing had something to do with someone not wanting them to place the flowers there, you know, which is why she waited till dark to sweep them all away, as he says. But she did it because she was angry that they, anybody would pretend that he was buried there because she had arranged for the undertaker to come up and exhume the body, and he did it at midnight in, July, in uh, late July of 1917. So she had to believe all of her life, and she lived till 1962. She lived, believed all her life that Tom did, in fact, lie in the family grave down in the in the town of Owen Sound. In fact, she was wrong all along. She should have left the flowers there because that is where her lover was buried. Do people still put flowers there in Remembrance Day, or is this kind of something yes. that's faded away? Yes, they hold vigils. They go up there at night. And if you go up there, there's a little marker, and uh, people put nickels on it and pennies and, and uh, leave little love letters and that. You know, It's been nearly 100 years, but in fact, he's not there either. <laughs> this, this was They do this to a little cross that was put up by a documentary maker back in the late 1960 doing a, a documentary on Tom Thompson. Tom's actually buried about another 10 to 12 paces away to the north of that. Wow, incredible. Incredible. Well, that was just as fun as I thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, uh, just one last thing. Uh, so you said you know the song well. You're a fan of the Tragically Hip, I assume. Do you have a favorite Tragically Hip song? Bob Cajun. Bob Cajun. Have you been there? Are you kidding? Millions of times. My, <laughs> two of our kids went to school over right by Bob Cage, and they went to school at Peterborough Trent, so we know Bob Cage quite well. Did you know? And anyone who could write a song that can put the word Bob Cage in it has got to be brilliant. Did you know that there, someone made a documentary about that's coming out very soon about the Tragically Hip finally playing there? No, I'd love to see it. Yeah, I saw the open for the Rolling Stones down in Moncton, New Brunswick. It was good. I enjoyed that as much as the Stones. When I say open for the Rolling Stones, they were about nine bands in front of the Rolling Stones. <laughs> but you can still say they opened for them. Yeah, so that, that documentary is coming out, I think, any day now. And uh, yeah. it documents the concert that they finally played at Bob Cajun. You know, the funniest thing about a Tragically Hip show when you go is you can always tell where everyone's from because so many of their lyrics have names of cities or places in them. Right. You know, like... Uh, when they play Bob Cajun and they say that night in Toronto, all if you're in Buffalo, all, you can hear all the people who came from Toronto cheer. 
yeah. you know, and then if they play uh, the 100th Meridian, and he's, he, when he says, I remember, I remember Buffalo, and you're in Canada, you can hear all the people from Buffalo cheer. Yeah, but that's an anomaly, really. That My understanding of the Tragically Hip is that it's one of as big a mystery almost as Tom Thompson is the fact that they have never been able to penetrate properly the American market or the world market. There's so much a Canada phenomenon, but at least you're telling me that they're in North, northern New York State and Buffalo well, yeah, they're, as well, which is great. Yeah, they can sell out arenas in Buffalo, and yeah. then if I go to Cleveland to see them, it's yeah. a small theater. Yeah, but don't yeah. forget, I mean, you have to remember that the border is incorrectly drawn, and they screwed it up back when they were finally settling the treaties and ended up drying up the American border. A lot of the states really should be in Canada, and certainly Buffalo's part of that, and certainly northern Michigan's part of that, and certainly Minnesota's far more Canadian than it is American. So well, you're more than welcome to enjoy the Tragically Hip because they're part of yours too. Well, thank you very much for that. And Minnesota is a state of hockey, so that would make sense too, right? <laughs> All right, uh, Roy McGregor, he is uh, writes for the Globe and Mail in uh, Canada. Uh, it's the equivalent of the USA Today, I guess, if you are uh, not sure. No! no? Not the equivalent? God, no. We're a serious newspaper. Well, I mean, but, I mean, it's the nation's newspaper both ways, right? Well, we try to have a little depth. I mean, yours might be better. I wasn't saying USA Today was any good. I was just trying to make it. USA Today has a very good, wonderful hockey writer in Kevin Allen. Oh, yeah, and he and wrote a really about great... where it begins and ends for me, <laughs> I'm afraid. So I would read USA Today for anything that Kevin wrote or thought. But uh, as a newspaper, yeah. no, I shouldn't say. Any newspaper is wonderful, and we should embrace them all, <laughs> because in 15 years there may be none. So God bless the United States of today, or whatever they call it. USA Today. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Roy, congratulations on the Hockey Hall of Fame, and thanks Thank for you. doing this today. All right, we want to thank Mike Tannier and Roy McGregor for being on this show. I got to tell you, Don, after that interview, I'm as giddy as Getty Lee. (laughs) I mean, when a guy who's watched thousands of hockey games tells me that my all-time favorite athlete played the greatest game he's ever seen a hockey player play. And not even record a point. And not record a point in the game. Yeah. And I love the hip stuff, too. That was so fun. So, awesome interview. Thank you very much to Hall of Famer Roy McGregor. Okay, real quick, I want to recap pick four from last week and tell you where we stand as we head into the new year. Uh, I was... 2 for 2 on Saints picks and 0 for 2 on everything else. Uh, I had the Saints minus 4 over the Bucks and I had the Saints minus 12 over the Bucks. Won both of those. I lost the Patriots minus 6 over San Fran and I lost the Jets minus 1 over the Titans. Thanks to the Jets and their just inability to <laughs> hold on to the ball. Yeah. Which is all they really had to do to win that game. Uh, Don, that puts me at 11 and 9 going into 2013. Okay, right. Uh, Don went 2-2 two and two as well. He had the Bengals minus 3 over the Eagles, won that easily, and the Vikings plus 3 over the Rams, won that easily. He also missed the Patriots over the 49ers and had the right idea on Texans over Colts, just gave up too many points, minus 18. And they won quite, by like 11 or something? Yeah, yeah. it was around 11. So uh, you go into the break 9-10-1. So we're not that far off at all. And since, like we said earlier, Nobody's going to remember games that we would pick today. 
you right. know, essentially three weeks from now when we do our next Sportscasters proper show. And I should mention that during the break, we will be doing Football Nation shows. Right. Correct. We will. Um, so make sure you look for those at www.footballnation.com and click on podcasts. And all the podcasts are there now. They got that problem fixed. So instead of that, we are going to do the top four sports moments of all time. And the way I presented this to Don when we had the idea was you can do it any way you want. Top four personal moments, top four moments in sports, top four sad moments, just anything you want. Any way to put a top four moments of 2012 list together. And I guess we'll do it. We'll go from number four to number one and we'll alternate. Yeah, I don't really have mine in any particular order. Uh, these aren't overly personal to me. Like, I had a good year, and my, my top four moments are overwhelmingly negative other than one. But to me, it's the maybe the four we per, that personally interested me the most, maybe the four that we, we talked about the most. But uh, I'll start it off with the one that we're still talking about, and that's Bounty Gate Ugh. in the NFL. Uh, I remember I was cutting my lawn listening to local talk radio, when they broke the news about all this and they talked about all the lawsuits and the CTE and I mean just these words that were thrown around and uh, as an aside to that I guess I'll tag that with uh, the NFL season started with Bounty Gate it also started with replacement refs so just a bad start to the NFL season this year. My number four mine are in order and my number four is the most personal one on my list and I almost put it at number one. But I thought that since it was personal, it should be at number four. Okay. Um, but in a way, it's my number one. And that was watching my brother finally in his home white jerseys at Yale play yeah, a Division yeah. One hockey game. Uh, there's nothing quite like watching someone that you're 11 years older than grow up and become the captain of the best prep school in your city and move to Sioux Falls, South Dakota to play in the best junior hockey league in the United States of America, and then to basically earn a free ride to Yale to play hockey, and then to be there in this historic arena and watch him play. I didn't make it there last year. I made it to two road games uh, because of my health, but I'll admit that on Friday, which was the first game I saw, I cried during the whole national anthem, and I saw his whole hockey career flash through my eyes, and um, congratulations to Anthony on everything he's accomplished. Yeah, good stuff. Congrats, Anthony. Keep it up. My second thing, uh, another negative one and kind of piggybacking off the NFL, but kind of a story in itself, is the Junior Seau death. That hit people really hard, and that maybe more than anything, more than Bounty Gate, brought CTE to a new light. Uh, I heard someone refer to it as it's, it's CTE in the high def era. I mean, we saw junior say play very, very recently at a very high level. This isn't some guy that people don't remember uh, when health maybe wasn't as good or people weren't told as much about concussions before. This is a guy that we grew up watching. He had a TV show where he went to different sporting venues and stuff like that. He was a likable, good looking, personable guy that, on the outside, everyone would assume he had everything, and he killed himself, and uh, it looked, again, like a CTE-related related death, and the NFL's got a problem, and it was absolutely highlighted in that day, and they still haven't 
they don't have an answer for it. And it just highlighted all the lawsuits and on local talk that day. I heard a lot of, I don't know if I'm going to let my kids play football because I don't want them to grow up this way. And just a real black eye for the NFL uh, losing a great back in May. Wow, it's amazing how different the tone of our list is. <laughs> Mine gets happier. All right, my number three is Barry Zito's starts in the NLCS and the World Series. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've been a big Barry Zito fan pretty much since day one. I'm an Italian-American as well. Barry Zito is an Italian-American. Um, I love his curveball. I've always been – I love pitchers. It's my favorite thing about baseball is pitchers and the way that they approach their craft. And Zito's always been my kind of guy. You know, he's a little different. He's out there a little bit. He dated Alyssa Milano, who I had a huge <laughs> crush on as a kid. There's just always been something about Zito that I loved. And when the Giants won the World Series a few years ago, Zito wasn't on the postseason roster. And he handled it like a pro. And this time... In the NLCS, he pitched seven and two-thirds innings of knockout baseball to help the Giants get to the World Series. And in the World Series, again, he pitched over five knockout innings. Then Tim Lincecum came out of the bullpen, and the Giants were World Series champions before you knew it. And a big reason for that was the way that Barry Zito pitched in those two games. And uh, so that was a, a personal... Uh, as a fan, great moment in the Major League Baseball playoffs. I'll be compelled to see next year if my list is more positive. Like, was this an overwhelmingly negative year? Uh, I mean, I know negative sells and like negative stays in the news, but my last thing or my last negative of my top four moments is Jerry Sandusky. Uh, in really just the Penn State Joe Paterno fiasco, really. Uh, Joe Paterno passes away would have been a hero to a lot of people. Instead, he passes away kind of as a villain. Jerry Sandusky ends up going to jail. And other than maybe Bounty Gate, I'm not sure we talked about anything more on this podcast than Jerry Sandusky or Penn State in one way or another. Yeah, and uh, John Wertheim was a big part of that. Yeah. And we mentioned him earlier, and he really helped us out a lot with covering that story. And I think we did a good job on it, and maybe proof of that is we even got some coverage on some other sites. Right, right. You know, like ShermanReport.com picked up some of what we did on, on that story. So, And we also had two guys who wrote a book about it pretty much right away on the show. I Their names escaped me. I'm sorry about that. But, um, yeah, that was huge. Uh, my number two is Pavel Bure being inducted into the oh, yeah. NHL Hall of Fame. Uh, as you just heard in the last interview, he's my all-time favorite athlete. And to see your all-time favorite athlete inducted next to the greatest players in his sport, it brings chills down your spine and it makes you feel like a kid again. And uh, I have to go with that as number two. Before the Summer Olympics started this year, I think you asked me something like along the lines of, is that going to bring me to my TV? And I, I don't think I'm intentionally jaded by it, but I think it's kind of like, you know, I don't, I don't get excited for it. But then as soon as they start Summer or Winter Olympics, I'm totally wrapped up in it. I don't know why I, can, why I trick myself in thinking I'm not going to be, but my uh, last top moment is just the Summer Olympics in a whole. Uh, 
a lot of it, a lot of the talk was about how Usain Bolt and Michael Phelps were maybe going to pass the torches to, uh, I can't remember the, the guy's name, the runner and uh, the swimmer, Lochte. And it, boy, did it not turn out that way. I think Phelps lost his first race to Lochte, and then Lochte was, Lochte was an afterthought after that, and Phelps went on to win. He's the most decorated athlete of all time, added up with 22 Olympic medals, 18 of which are gold. And uh, every four years, it seems like the country falls in love with uh, a gymnastics team, and that was no exception this year. The Fierce Five, they called themselves, with Gabby Douglas and... Uh, that one girl still has like internet memes floating around. Michaela Maroney yeah. about how she's not impressed, and uh, just people you've never heard of that turn into heroes for a short time. And Usain Bolt just embarrassing the crowd, like uh, the crowd, the uh, field, the field again. Uh, he thought he wasn't even challenged. He's unbelievable, that guy. Yeah, he's a freak. But yeah, I get wrapped up in the Olympics every every time they come around. I don't know why I don't get excited leading up to them, but they were great. I'm glad you had that on the list because I was hoping that we weren't going to ignore the Olympics. Good. My number one thing, I don't want to repeat myself, but I told everyone when he was 17 years old, he was going to be <laughs> the greatest player to ever play at Oklahoma. And if he's not, he's damn close. And when he left Oklahoma, I told everyone if he could stay healthy, he'd be one of the greatest players to ever play running back in the National Football League. And my number one moment in sports in 2012 is the triumphant return of Adrian Peterson. And it starts with him beating Percy Harvin in August up a hill (laughs) in a race. And it goes all the way to this last eight-game stretch and maybe continues on to him having the greatest single rushing season in the history of the National Football League. Yeah, and we talked about that off the air, I think maybe through text. Uh, Best ever is going to be thrown around when he retires, especially because, like you told me over the text, he's going to hold the single-game record. He has that right now. He has that right now, and he's probably going to have the single-season record. And all it's going to take is a little bit of longevity in his career, and he should get – I mean, realistically, he should get to Emmett Smith's number faster than Emmett did. He's not going to need – Emmett had a long career. I can't remember how long, but he's not going to need that length of a career to break Emmett Smith's record. And, uh, you know, Eric Dickerson, you're a creep. You know, <laughs> records are made to be broken, and everyone, it seemingly but you, embraces that. Yeah. You know, when uh, Jamal Lewis was breaking his record, he was, like, rooting against him. And right, right. And he came out again and said he's rooting against Adrian. Be very scared for the rest of this guy's career. Because if he doesn't do it this year, he might do it next year or the year after that. Because he's doing all of this without anything else right now. Percy Harvin has been gone for weeks. Christian Ponder can't throw for over 200 yards. And he's doing it anyway. And it's only one year after his surgery. Wait till it's two. Wait till it's three. Be scared, Eric Dickerson. Be scared, Emmett Smith. This guy is coming for you, and by the end of his career, he is going to be the greatest running back who's ever played football. And it's gonna people might debate me about Jim Brown or people I haven't seen, right. but I'll at least be able to make a case. We'll see you in two thousand and thirteen.